In this lecture, we'll be talking about that cost, quality, and access uh, model that we started the semester discussing, and we'll talk about each of these and how they interrelate. So let's go ahead and get started. I want to show you 525,600. What is that? Well, uh, since you're not in front of me, I can't do this. I uh, can't play games with you on it. So it is the number of minutes in the year. 525,600 minutes in a year. And so I was at a conference with the Army Surgeon General, who had been my boss at one point, and she put this image up on the screen and she said, we've got 525,600 minutes in the course of a year. And she talked about the importance of self-care, of getting exercise, maintaining your diet and getting good sleep. That's kind of the triumvirate um, of, of wellness. And she said, patients have got to do that. Um, and from a healthcare system, as a healthcare system, how much time does the average patient spend interacting with the healthcare system where the, where the healthcare system is able to make an impact on the patient? And she then showed something that looked like this and said, on average, a patient in the military health system has five visits per year for approximately 20 minutes per visit with their healthcare provider. So out of the 525,600 minutes, only 100 minutes of the year are spent interacting directly with a primary care provider. So where does health come from? If the it, it can't, right? Her point was in a hundred minutes, a healthcare provider can't make your health, you know, make your healthcare. So what does create health? Well, we've talked about so far, on the one hand, health behaviors, diet, exercise, sleep is not on my list here, but diet, exercise, sleep. Those are the three that the Surgeon General was talking about on that day but also our other choices around things like smoking, our use of alcohol and other kinds of drugs, safe sex, and lots of other things that we lump into this health behaviors category. These are all choices that we are making. On the other hand, social determinants of health, some of which are the result of our choices, but the, these represent the social context in which we are trying to be healthy. So you have, on the one hand, the choices, the daily choices that patients are engaged in. On the other hand, the environment that they live in, and then enter the direct care health system, right? The healthcare delivery system, your primary care provider, any specialists that you're going to interact with. It's a tiny fraction, right? It's the point, the point of that, of that, of this slide is the interaction that you have with the healthcare system is a tiny fraction of the time that you have in the course of the year. And most of your health is going to come from the interaction between your choices as an individual and the social environment that you are embedded in, you and or the community, right? So you, your people you care about, people who are in your community. So where does health come from? Mostly this, right? Mostly the top section. And direct care, the providers can only touch and, and influence a little bit. And so when we build health policy, 
we ought to be thinking a lot more about this part, the, the health health behaviors and the social determinants of health, um, rather than really focused on the direct care, because most of the costly interventions that have to be done today are the result of sustained bad health behaviors, poor diet, poor exercise, smoking, drinking, and doing other kinds of drugs that you shouldn't be doing and other stuff. All this right, leads to chronic illness and the US healthcare system spends most of its money treating chronic illness. So I had introduced this idea of the iron triangle of healthcare, cost, quality, and access. And the thing that we know is it's relatively easy to, to fix one of these at the cost of the other two, right? So we can improve quality, for example, by spending more money. That's the easiest thing to think. That's the easiest thing to do. We can spend more money and increase quality. And frankly, we can spend more money and increase quality and increase access, right? We can hire more providers, uh, hire more nursing staff so that there's more access and we have more people paying attention to the quality of the care being delivered, but that drives up cost greatly. We can sacrifice access in order to keep cost constant and improve quality, right? So we can have our providers spend more time with each patient and keep the cost the same without hiring more providers. But the problem then would be there'd be fewer visits. And so there'd be less access. And then finally, you know what the best way to cut cost is? Cut access, right? If you want to cut the lower the lower the cost of of your healthcare system, it's really easy. You just keep patients, you know, lock the doors and don't let the patients in, or hire shoddy providers. Those are all easy. You know, it's relatively easy to do two of these things. It's really easy to do one. It's relatively easy to do two. You know, pick two but it's really hard to do all three at the same time. And that's why we call it the iron triangle is because it's so hard to hit all three at the same time, improve quality, improve access and cut costs. So we recognize that. And if theory came up uh, uh, and was introduced in, I want to say the late eighties, early nineties uh, called the triple aim, which the idea is that, it's related to, so I'm going to introduce you to a couple of different models of thinking about cost, quality, and access. So the first one was the iron triangle. Triple aim is the same kind of thing where they said the goals of the healthcare system are to provide sustainable, effective treatment to have a high quality patient experience. That means that when a patient comes in to get care, the outcomes are good. It's safe. It's done in a manner that is respectful to the to the patient's cultural expectations and needs. And then finally, looking at it from a macro perspective, the the healthcare system should be working on population health. Now, we just made the point a second ago, where does healthcare come from? Mostly individual choices and the environment that the patients are in. So how much can the healthcare system itself, right, the hospitals, the providers really impact the environment? Well, to some degree, right? They they can certainly, hospitals and uh, 
form leader, take leadership positions in the communities that they exist in to try to influence population health. But we can do some stuff, right? We can make investments in looking at population health and the idea of using technology to identify at-risk populations and provide them the appropriate care and interventions to help them. So the triple aim was was originally these three things, reducing costs, population health, patient experience. What they realized as we started to move along was it's kind of like the iron triangle. You can push on these three things, but at what cost? And that cost is impacting the experience of the provider. So we could just push providers really hard and have really high expectations of what they're going to do and the amount of effort that they're going to put in. But that starts to hurt the individual provider. It exhausts them and they start to feel burned out. And physician burnout and provider burnout in general is a major factor today, especially post-COVID. So the triple aim evolved into the quadruple aim, meaning we want to try to address all four of these aspects of care. But again, kind of like the triple aim, relatively easy to do, you know, relatively easy to do, like say these three, but hard to reduce costs. And cost is usually the place where we see the, you know, the shortfall happening if we try to improve. So, so it's a bit like the, the, metaphor I like to use is imagine you have a water balloon and you start to squeeze one end of the water balloon. What happens? The water in the balloon goes off to the other side and blows up the other side. And then you try to squeeze the other side and it you know goes back to, you know, back across, back and forth, back and forth. Is sort of like trying to address these these competing aims all at the same time. And so ideally what you want to do is take the water balloon and squeeze it on all angles until it compresses down. Now, water is really hard to do that with. Um, but maybe you imagine a gas. So the, instead of it being a water balloon, it's a, a, a normal balloon, right? You could press a, a gas-filled balloon into a smaller thing, but it's really hard because the balloon always wants to shoot off. If you don't have it all around completely contained, you're not addressing, if you're not addressing all of the pieces all at the same time, some piece of the balloon is going to shoot out. And, you know, so that is the equivalent of, hey, I'm, we're, we're pressing on patient experience, population health, provider health, excuse me, provider experience. And then whoop, shooting off to the side is, is, you know, cost goes up. So this is another model. This is the model. And, and this is the model. Triple aim really was the model that shaped the thinking of the policy experts that developed the the ACA, the Obamacare policy set, was they were heavily focused on value-based care, right? Care that actually addresses outcomes, reducing costs, and improving the overall quality of health. What kind of got left out of the ACA was the provider experience. But we're now aware of that, and there's a lot of discussion now. So if you do go into the healthcare field, you're going to hear about the triple aim and the quadruple aim. So let's talk about measuring quality, right? So from a user perspective, what is quality? Um, you know, it's your experience of the care, and it's the outcomes of your care. And so if you want to, so one of the things that came out of the ACA was this um, uh tracking called the Hospital Consumer Assessment 
of Healthcare Providers and Systems, or HCAPS. Um, and it is a series of measures that look at a variety of, of, of aspects of care that are provided by providers and hospitals. And so you can you can go to the website that I've got here. And if you're looking to evaluate a hospital or a provider, you can click through here, find the provider, and they are required to report this data to Medicare. So some of the data, is, some of it is data, some of it is quality data about uh, different kinds of outcomes. So the hospital reports all that. But then Medicare does a survey uh, that goes with it as well, a subjective evaluation performed by patients after they get out. And so they try to measure some of these pieces like, did you feel like the doctors actually listened to you? Do you feel like the nurses actually listened to you? Uh, did they explain you know, what you needed to do at discharge? Was it relatively quiet at night uh, when you're trying to sleep? Right? And hospitals are notoriously noisy places. So we have a, a tool in place. So if you are looking for a hospital or a provider to either get care for yourself or to get care for a loved one, you can go to this uh, hospital compare website and get information about their outcomes and their uh, and the subjective evaluations of patients. So this is a measure, you know, measure of quality. Another model that we use is called the Donabedian model, and they look at structure, process, and outcomes. And this obviously is not just healthcare. But it, um, uh, uh, it does it, it it applies to to healthcare, and you can see I've I'm kind of there's an interaction here between structure and process, and we'll talk about I'm going to talk about each of these in a second, and how they both lead to outcomes. So structural measures when we when when we're using the Donabedian model and we're talking about structural measures, we're talking about kind of the infrastructure of the organization. So it's capacity, it's systems, and it's processes to provide high quality of care. So it's, the question is whether the healthcare system, for example, uses an electronic medical record uh, or electronic medication order entry system. So that's a structural intervention that prevents mistakes in the healthcare system. If you're doing an electronic health record that has the medications that a patient is on in the health record and all of the providers in the system have access to the same record it's not like a it's not like a medication that a patient is on is being written down and kept in one physician's office such that if that patient then goes to a different physician's office or winds up in the ED that nobody knows about that medication that the patient started so that if a new physician starts to treat the patient they can look and see oh patient you know, this patient, Mrs. Smith is already on uh, drug A. If I give her drug B, drug A and B are going to interact and could cause side effects for Mrs. Smith. So I'm not going to give her drug B because I know she's already on A. I'm going to give her drug C instead. Or if I need to give her drug B, I'm going to get in touch with the physician that, that ordered drug A. And we're going to have a conversation about whether she really needs to be on A or not, or whether we can do something else because I really need to give her B. So that's that's the kind of thing that's going on with a he electronic health record is, well, let me say with, with a paper record, the problem with that is the paper can only sit in one place. With an electronic health record, everybody in the system can tap into the health record. 
And so that makes it a lot safer for a patient as they navigate the system. Um, other structural measures are things like the number uh, or proportion of board certified physicians. So if you have a hospital, you're running a hospital, you want all of your physicians to be board certified in the specialty that they are working in. Right? So you want 100% of that if possible. And then you want, uh, you know, you don't want an unsafe ratio of providers to patients. So this is where you got cost and quality, right? So more providers, more nurses gives you a, you know, a safer, better environment for the patient, but that costs a lot of money. So there's always kind of this fight, internal, you know, prioritization fight to get as many nurses as you can on the ward. Cause in the ideal world, you'd have like one nurse per patient, but, but no hospital can afford to do that. So you want to get a, you want to have a safe ratio of providers to patients. So these are all kind of infrastructure decisions um, that shape the environment that the patient is getting care in. Process measures look at how does the how does the provider uh, maintain or improve health, uh, and so your book talks about CPGs, clinical practice guidelines. So these are evidence based. Uh, researched decisions. So, so healthcare providers, doctors, and nurses are constantly looking at how they provide care and they're measuring the impacts of different approaches to providing care. And then they publish those, those studies that they do. And those studies form the basis of evidence-based medicine. And from that evidence-based medicine, we get clinical practice guidelines. And so multiple studies come together, different physicians and different organizations, different nurses and different organizations look at different processes and they eventually come to a concurrence that, hey, here's the way that we treat patients who have sepsis, which is a, a blood infection, right? Um, and very deadly. So there's a clinical practice guideline that says something like, you know, once we've diagnosed a patient with sepsis, we do steps A, B, and C within 60 minutes. We do steps D, E, and F uh, over the course of the next 24 hours, and we do blah, blah, blah. So it's a, it's, it is, so, uh, it is pejoratively referred to as cookbook medicine, meaning you're just providing the providers with a list of steps that they're supposed to do, like they're, like they haven't gone to eight or 12 years of training as if they just need to follow a cookbook. But in fact, there are better recipes, right? There are better recipes that result in better outcomes. And so clinical practice guidelines are these recipes for providing high quality of care based on evidence and studies that have been done by physicians and nurses and other providers in the field. So organizations, if they want to make sure that they are addressing processes, look for evidence-based medicine and clinical practice guidelines that tell how do you do the process the best you can. Uh, other measures of process are things like, are we how well are we doing on preventative services, such as giving mammograms and colonoscopies and immunizations and well woman checks and all that sort of stuff, right? So that's a process measure. And an example of that would be the percentage of people with diabetes who had their blood sugar test tested and controlled, right? So diabetes is a chronic illness. The only way to take care of it is to make sure that you are 
staying on top of the process of the disease by measuring uh, blood sugar to make sure that the patient is keeping his or her diet and exercise under control with, 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 with their condition. And then finally, we get to outcome measures. Right? So these are these reflect the actual impact of the care uh, or intervention that has been done by the healthcare system. And so this would be, you know, for example, the number of patients who died as a result of the surgery, right? So surgical mortality rates, uh, the rate of complications, meaning things like, so you got the surgery, the surgery appeared to go well, but you wound up getting an infection. So those are examples of outcome measures. Another way of thinking about improving quality, and this is this is a very generic quality improvement process, uh, DMAIC, and it and it's the define, measure, analyze, improve, and control. And so this comes from the work of a a, a researcher named Edward Deming, and he was a uh, he was looking at quality back in the 40s and 50s, and he was working in manufacturing primarily. And he was saying, hey, you know, he was an American and he was saying to, to manufacturing companies in the United States, he was saying, hey, we can make better products, you know, by focusing on quality and improving the quality, uh, the processes we're doing, in particular, focusing on processes to look at processes we're doing that then influence the outcomes of our processes, right? So uh, if you think about a manufacturing line, you look at the steps that e that is that are happening at each stage and what is being done at each stage. And if you can kind of focus on looking at each stage and trying and, and look and say, hey, could we do step three a little better such that by the time the, say, let's say car comes off the assembly line, there isn't a problem that that we can trace all the way back to step number three, and there might be a thousand steps, right? So, step number three, if we if we did a little better at step number three, we could have an overall better outcome. And so, uh, so Deming was trying to sell this to Americans in the fifties. I, I want to say it was in the fifties, and nobody wanted to hear it. And the reason that nobody wanted to hear it in America was because the rest of the world had just spent the last five, six years, blowing everything up, right? So the productive capacity of Europe was basically in rubble. The productive capacity in Japan was in rubble. China was nowhere. China was a very rural country, didn't have any productive capacity. And nowhere else in the world really had any productive capacity of any significance. So really, the developed world at that point in time in the 50s had basically just blown itself apart during World War II. And so the only product only developed country that still had untouched productive capacity was the United States. And so the United States was selling was United States manufacturers were going happily along, making stuff and selling it all around the world, and just going gangbusters and making money hand over fist. Because nobody else was nobody else's factories were left standing. Now, during that period of time, all of these countries were trying to rebuild themselves and get their production capacity back online. 
So, and they were working with very, you know, they were starting from scratch basically because so much of their stuff had been destroyed. And so Deming winds up going over to Japan and working with Japanese companies that are rebuilding their factories. And the Japanese, because they have so much to do to try to get back and so few resources, they recognized that they really wanted to make sure that their products were, that their processes were uh, optimized as much as possible and their processes were as efficient as possible. So Deming, they, they welcomed Deming in with open arms. I will tell you, when I was a little kid uh, in the 70s, made in Japan was the same thing as saying junk, right? So anything that had made in Japan was considered junk in the 70s. Today, I think, and it wasn't, and it didn't take long, uh, in even in my lifetime, by the 80s, that idea had faded away. And Japan today as it has been for 30 years, made in Japan today is typically regarded as the highest quality. And the, it was the direct result of the influence of Ed Deming going over to Japan and working with the companies and implementing his quality improvement processes. So let's talk a little bit about the MAIC. The idea, this is a continuous cycle, right? So we we start with some problem like, hey, it seems like uh, we've got we've got some errors. We've got some problems when the car comes off the production line. We've got some problems with it. Uh, maybe the the seats are loose or the door handles keep falling off. So that's our problem, right? Our door handles keep falling off. So we've defined the problem. What what is that? Let's measure the the problem. So we say, okay, of the last thousand cars that came off the line, how many of them had door handles that were not properly attached. And so we quantify the problem. Then we go into the analyze. Well, analyze stage. Well, where is, where, what stages are working on attaching the door handles and making sure that they're attached properly? And so we identify and we try to leak in and we're like, all right, it looks like, you know, at step 47, we're attaching this door handles. And it seems like that might be the place. So then we come up with an, with a, with a solution, a potential solution to the problem, and we implement it and we measure the outcome and we say, okay, it looks like that, uh, that did in fact fix the situation and we've improved our outcomes and then we control it. So we set up, we've, we've identified the, the problem. We've come up with a potential solution. We've implemented the solution and it seems to be working. So now we standardize the procedure. So this is, we write a new procedure so that everybody understands, hey, at step 47, we always do X, Y, and Z. And everybody says, yes, yep, that's what we're going to do. And so we stabilize the process. Then we go back to the defining again, We and we're looking at you know, what other problems can we do? What other things can we do to improve the process? Define that new like, hey, we want to focus on this new area. We then measure, analyze, put an improvement in place. If we succeed in improving it, we lock it in by setting the, by getting everybody to agree to the new steps. And this applies to healthcare too, right? This is every hospital that you go to has a quality office that is looking at how do we improve outcomes. So if we 
find a problem like patients are getting the wrong medications on the ward. Okay, that's a really bad problem, right? So the medication comes up, it goes to Mrs. Smith, but it was really meant for Mr. Jones, right? That's a problem. We've got to we've got to fix that problem. So then we measure. How often does it happen? How often does the does the medication get to the ward for it for patient A, but winds up with patient B? So we measure the frequency of that problem. Then we analyze what's what steps are in the process of getting the medication up to the ward and to the right patient. So we try to figure out where is the problem in this step. Then we fix that step and then we lock it in by setting a new standard operating procedure, train everybody on it and say, okay, everybody nods their head and says, yes, we understand that's what we're going to do now. And then we back to, again, looking for another place where we can improve. So it's not just so these this demaic, you're going to see this whether you're in healthcare or some other field. Almost every field uses some sort of quality improvement process, and demaic is an is an old and popular one. Another common tool is called statistical process control, and this is a, a also a thing that Deming did. Deming was a statistician by training, and so he really looked at processes. So using this bullseye metaphor, if you've ever shot uh, a gun uh, or a rifle, for example, or a, a pistol, um, there's some technique to it. So I, so, so when I was in the army and I was first learning how to shoot a rifle, um, they had you, they, they teach you some basic uh, uh, approaches to shooting. One of them is, is learning how to squeeze the trigger, which sounds really straightforward, but you have to very, very smoothly squeeze the trigger if you you can if you if you get anxious and you jerk the trigger so you you squeeze the trigger very quickly what happens is that squeezing motion will cause you to lift the rifle a little bit and that lifting of the rifle will cause you to have a higher have your 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 bullet instead of going where you're aiming it when you squeeze the trigger, you may have you might be sighted right on the bullseye. But if you squeeze the trigger too hard, too quickly, it jerks the rifle up, and you wind up hitting above where you're trying to hit, um, or it pulls to the right. I forget now. I'm I'm probably getting the wrong ones. And then breathing is the other thing. When you're shooting, they want you to breathe in and out in a nice smooth manner so you're as you're shooting as you're pulling the trigger you want to be as my darth vader in, in, uh, 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 version here but you want to be squeezing as you're breathing because that can jerk the rifle to the right and left if you're you know if your breathing is off so these kind of these two things of breathing and trigger squeeze can cause uh can, can cause your uh, targeting to be scattered all over the pro all over the the target, um, and so this is what Deming would call an out of control process because there's multiple things going wrong at the same time, and so when you get your trigger squeeze and your breathing under control, then what you'll see is you'll get what, what we call in marksmanship a nice tight shot group, meaning you're hitting the target consistently in the same spot. Now, if you're hitting the target consistently in the same spot, that means that you've got your, your breathing and your trigger squeeze under control. 
And so probably what's wrong with this situation is now is your sights are not set properly. So if you're aiming here and you're consistently hitting over here, chances are what's wrong there is your sights are off. And so it just you just need to address your adjust your sights so you can take this controlled process and move it by adjusting the sights and you get both a controlled and accurate process. So this is the same thing with you know running um running a hospital, right? Running a process in a hospital. So so for example, um you are trying to run a lab test and what you're getting, for example, you're taking, you know, measures of cholesterol and you're getting all these weird outcomes, maybe from the same, you know, you, you, multi, you, me, you, you measure the cholesterol from the same sample and you wind up getting multiple kind of outcomes that are all over the place. Well, you have to figure out, well, what is the problem with, with the cholesterol? Is it the way that, that the blood is being drawn? Are the, you know, are, are the reagents bad? Um, is there something that the tech is doing that's weird? Uh, maybe the tech doesn't quite know how to run the machine correctly. Like all these things could cause a out of control process. So then you address the, you address the, uh, consistency of the process so that you get down to here. And then, uh, you have a controlled process that results in consistently in getting the same result, um, and then you adjust your last stage to make sure that that it's both consistent and accurate. Another really well-known kind of quality control process is called lean management. And again, this comes out of manufacturing. Uh, and in fact, this comes from Toyota. It's also known as the Toyota way. And Toyota developed this again in the, in the following World War II, when they had very few resources, they couldn't afford to waste the resources that they had. Whereas American companies had, you know, could anything they made, they could sell, even if it was junk. And so you know, American companies were willing to waste a lot because, because customers didn't have a choice to go someplace else. But Toyota had so few resources, they couldn't afford to waste. And so they developed a whole system focused on eliminating waste. And so there are, so lean, the lean system is really focused on eliminating waste. And there are eight kinds of waste and you can read them here. I'm not going to talk about each of them. Um, so for example, uh, I'm going to give you a couple examples. Um, uh, motion is not having a, an organized workflow. So, so if I have if I have to run from one side of the room to the other side of the room to do to do different processes on the same on the same sample. So again, let's say like the lab, right? If I've got to do the um, filling of test tubes on one side of the of the room and then carry the test tubes to the other side of the room to put them in the machine that's going to run the test, it would make more sense to put the two things together so that you're not walk having to do all this walking, 
right? So the tech can be more efficient if the machine is right next to where he's filling the test tubes, then he could just, you know, take one step to the right and put the tubes into the machine. And so that eliminates the waste of time that he has to spend walking from one place to another. So that's an example of, of, a, of waste. Um, so let's, let me give you an example um, of transportation waste, which is moving things or moving things or information around. And it's a little bit like motion waste. So um, my wife had our first baby back in, uh, in 1996 at Brook Army Medical Center, which uh, is one of the, one of the militaries. It's probably the third largest hospital in the military health system. It is, it is known as one of the best hospitals in the country, frankly. Um, they do all kinds of amazing research there. They have one of the best burn centers in the world there, so specialized in, in treating burns. Um, but it's a medical center, and they do everything. Uh, so my so we were living in San Antonio at the time. That's where Brook Army Medical Center is. We were living in San Antonio at the time. It was our first baby. And so my wife says to me, you know, she's pregnant and we're expecting. She's like, I think I'm in labor. And so we get in the car and goes, you know, and I go barreling uh, through San Antonio at you know, excessive speeds because I'm terrified as a first time new dad. And we get to the hospital and my wife is examined and they're like, yep, you are indeed in labor. And they put my wife in the labor room, right? So there was a labor room where, where, uh, you, uh, you labored until it was time to deliver. So she, so there was a nurse monitoring her come and checking on her every couple of minutes. And then when it, when it was time to actually deliver the baby and they're like, all right, you're, you're, you know, you're ready to deliver they wheeled her into the delivery room, which is a whole separate room uh, where she then uh, delivered. And this is a, it was very funny. This is a teaching hospital. So, uh, for example, when she came in to be examined, we had uh, she was the only mom giving birth at the time. So there were something like uh, five uh, obstetrics residents came in to examine her. She got like five exams. Um, from all the different residents, plus the attending, uh, the attending uh, physician who was teaching the residents. So she got the pleasure of having that. And then while she was in labor, uh, the nurses said, do you want an epidural? Right? It's pain relief. Uh, and she said, yes. And so uh, five anesthesiology residents showed up and four or five, you know, who knows? I don't remember exactly now. Uh, it's been a while, but it was like, a gaggle of people show up, right? So this is separate from the quality thing, uh, other than the patient experience, right? Uh, a gaggle of, of anesthesiologists show up to give her an epidural. So eventually the, the nurse says, okay, you are ready to deliver. They wheel her into the delivery room where the five uh, uh, OB docs again show up to deliver the one baby. So we have a whole crowd of, of doctors in there. Um, and then we have a, a, a bunch of nurses in there. So it's like like a, you know, like some sort of sporting event or something. There's me, my wife, and 10 people we we don't know uh, helping to deliver my my daughter. So she delivers in the delivery room. <clears throat> then she's wheeled to the recovery room uh, where she has, she gets attention, you know, some intensive attention for the next couple of hours to make sure that everything is, is you know, uh, uh, that she has no complications that, you know, and she's kind of closely monitored. 
And then finally, she's wheeled to a fourth room, the postpartum room, where she then is recovering for the next two days uh, with, in this case, it was something like a nine bedroom, which I find insane. Um, but that's the nature of government. If, you, if you're a fan of government run healthcare, be ready for having nine women in your postpartum recovery room uh, because it's efficient, not because it's fun for the patients to share a room with eight other women and their babies. So what you see here is a lot of movement, right? Labor, delivery, recovery, postpartum. Now, at this time, this was kind of how healthcare was done back in the day. Um, but even in 1996, civilian healthcare had moved away from this because they cared about the patient's experience of the care because patients in the civilian sector can choose which hospital they want to go to. If you're in the army, you go to the army hospital, end of discussion. Or if you're a spouse of an army officer or, or, or a service member, you go to the army hospital, the air force hospital, you don't have a choice. So in the civilian sector, they had this thing called LDRPs, labor delivery recovery postpartum suites. So LDRP suites. And what this does is it compresses all four of these stages into one room. And our second baby we had, um, well, she had, I just watched. Our second baby was delivered in a civilian hospital because uh, the, the base I was at at the time was too small to have its own hospital. So she, when she delivered, she delivered um, at the University of Colorado Medical Center, so a civilian facility. And they had an LDRP. So when we rolled in and they, they said, yep, you're definitely in labor, um, they rolled us into an LDRP. And so they put her in a bed. Um, when it came time to deliver, the bed was like this transformer thing. Like, you know, the toys, the transformers are turned from a, from like a robot into a car and stuff. Well, the bed kind of does this. So it's like, you know, they're like, all right, it's time to deliver. And the, and the bed goes, and all of a sudden it turns into a, um, into a, a delivery bed. It's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, stirrups come out and, and, and stuff. And I'm like, where did all that come from? But it's all one bed. And then the baby's delivered. Um, and then, uh, uh, they, you know, it, does its transformer thing again and the, 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 the bed goes back into being a bed again. And my wife, you know, gets the intensive uh, 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 observation by the nurse in the same bed, literally same room, same bed. Right. And then postpartum, she just stays in the same bed uh, for 24 hours this time because of second delivery. Um, so this, 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 process removes the transportation waste that uh, Lean talks about, right? So we're not moving the patient from room to room to room to room. It's all one room with a bed that's designed to, to, to change based on the, the current need of the patient and the stage at which the patient is in the delivery process. <clears throat> um, and happy ending to the story, Congress got enough complaints from military service members saying, hey, we're tired of having, you know, having our spouses treated like this. This is convenient. You know, having this movement, right, is convenient for, for your staff, but it's an unpleasant experience for uh, for our, our um, 
for the female service members and for female spouses of service members, you know, nobody likes this. Um, and so Congress said, okay, if you, you know, Congress said to the military health system said, we're going to give anyone who is a military health system benefit, any woman who is a military health system beneficiary is going to have the right to choose whether she wants to deliver in a military hospital or in a civilian hospital. So that's the one time where you get to choose uh, you, where you want to get your care. So if you, so if I was in San Antonio and they said, Hey, you can, you know, you can deliver at Brook and you'll have this four stage, you know, where we're going to be carting you all around uh, the ward into different to, to different rooms. Or you can deliver in a hospital, you know, in a hospital that has an LDRP up to you, which one you want to go to. You know, women started saying, thank you very much. We're going to go to the LDRP. And then when we're done, we'll come back to the military health system. But we're going to, I'm going to deliver my babies in an LDRP. What, what do you think happened in the military health system? Well, all of a sudden they found money to build LDRPs. And so for them far, as far as I know today, Nobody runs a system like this. All military hospitals that deliver babies, as far as I know, have LDRPs. Could be wrong, um, but all of the ones that I'm aware of had in in the early 2000s went ahead and built LDRPs in order to be more appealing to the uh, to the to the moms who are going to be delivering. So. Going, clicking back here, there's these are all different kinds of waste that you try to that that the lean process tries to eliminate. And so, somebody who is trained in lean will learn about each of these wastes and learn about how to identify them. And then you'll apply the DMAIC model of you know defining the waste, measuring the waste, analyzing, improving, controlling. Right. So this so these models kind of overlap with each other. And the statistical process control is also uh, used in this in this overarching approach to improving quality. So each of these are a way of 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 worse quality. All right. So let's we've talked about quality quite a bit. Uh, let's talk specifically about access. So there are five dimensions of access that your book talks about: availability, which is the fit between the service. Right. There's a service that's needed and an individual that has a need. And so the service is available. So you need a cardiologist, there's a cardiologist available. If you need a cardiologist and there's a ENT available, that's not any good, right? So you have, so access means that there's an, a, the service that you need is actually available. Accessibility refers to kind of geography. Um, like, yes, there's a, you need an, uh, a cardiologist. There is indeed a cardiologist available, but he's a two hour drive away that's not really accessible. Or there's a cardiologist, but the person is on the second floor and there's no elevator. So, you know, if you're having a heart condition, you don't want to be climbing stairs and stressing your body, or if you're confined to a wheelchair, right? You can't. Uh, so these are kind of more or less like physical access. Affordable speaks for itself. If you can't afford it, then you may, you don't have access. Accommodation uh, looks at the patient's needs in terms of, we've talked about cultural perspective, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, do you have people that uh, 
Do you have people in your system that speak the language of the patients? Do you have cultural matches for the patients that are acceptable? Uh, sorry, acceptability is cultural. Um, do you have hours, right? Accommodation meaning like hours. So like you've got a baby, you're a working mom or dad or both, right? It, does your pediatrician have after hours, like after business hours availability? Like do they stay open till seven or eight? Because you know what? Kids, uh, frankly, kids never get sick during business hours. They always get sick in the evening uh, or on Saturday or Sunday. And so accommodation would be, are there, you know, is there access available outside of business hours? And then acceptability, that's cultural match. So do you respect the cultural uh, needs and identity needs of the patient? So are you respectable, respectful of their gender, of their um, uh, uh, ethnicity, race, and so on. And finally, uh, cost, right? And, and, and well, insurance is a mix of cost and access, but insurance coverage doesn't equal access. So a lot of people are under the impression that, hey, you know, let's get everybody insurance. Okay, you know, we could give everybody insurance. That doesn't mean that there's enough providers to provide the care. And I think a lot of people today, in particular post-COVID, are, are finding that a lot of providers are booked up. A lot of providers are retiring because they're older and they're just burnt out and tired and don't want to provide anymore. And so you can have insurance, but there might not be a provider that's available to you or, or willing to take you on. Um, Medicaid beneficiaries often face this problem. Medicaid is a is is just frankly a bad payer. They pay very, very low reimbursements to providers. And so a lot of providers will close their practice. So a lot of physicians will close their practice to Medicaid beneficiaries. So they'll, they might take a small number of Medicaid beneficiaries, and then they'll just say, we are not taking Medicaid anymore. So if you have Medicaid, you have to go find another provider because providers, frankly, are a for-profit business. Um, and so they close their doors to, to Medicaid beneficiaries. So you could have Medicaid, but you might not be able to find a provider that takes Medicaid. Uh, we ran into that problem when we when we were running with Tricare. Tricare pays. Tricare is the insurance um, that supplements the military health system. So if there's no if you're a service member and there's no military hospital in your area that has the kind of care that you need, you use Tricare, the insurance arm of the military health system to purchase care in the community from civilian providers. Well, the TRICARE reimbursement is a, almost as bad as Medicaid. And so a lot of a lot of providers will be like, yeah, you know, doors closed to TRICARE uh, users as well. So you can't, and on the flip side, you can have access without health insurance. So I had you listen to the podcast about the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. They don't take insurance. Um, and as a result, they're able to charge much lower prices. There are a lot, uh, there are a lot of providers and a growing number of providers who basically have just said, I don't take health insurance, period. And so 
Uh, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma is, is one example, but actually mental health providers are probably the most common that have sworn off health insurance, uh, mostly because there's such a demand for their services that they don't need to take insurance. They don't need the demand that is created by having patients that have that have health insurance. So they basically say, you, I'm happy to see you, but my rate is $150 an hour or $200 an hour or $500 an hour or whatever insane amount it is. And you can, you know, give me your credit card when you come through the door, I will ring it in and then I will give you, give you the receipt and you can go back to your insurance company and see how much they'll reimburse you for. But I'm not going to deal with your insurance company. And they do that because insurance companies are incredibly unpleasant to deal with for the most part. Um, now, insurance companies will tell you otherwise, but based on my conversations with providers, they don't see it that way. And so they prefer not to um, deal with insurance companies. And so just as a reminder, what do insurance companies do, right? They, they pre-negotiate prices. So you know how much you're going to pay when you go through the door. They smooth uh, the expenditures for predictable costs, such as, you know, your annual exam. They just build that into your premium, right? So if you have, if you, if they know you're a woman and you're going to have an annual exam, it's going to cost $200. Uh, they just, they just take that $200 divided by 12 and add that to your premium, right? Cause they're not allowed to, to charge it uh, separately. Uh, and then they, you know, they take on risk for those big unpredictable, large costs. Like if you get run over by a bus and you need a million dollars in care, that's the true pure insurance component of, of health insurance. Um, so, so you can, but you can get care without having insurance. So my main point here is insurance does not equal access. It may help with access, uh, but it doesn't automatically translate into having access. Again, so the big point here would be Medicaid. A lot of Medicaid beneficiaries have insurance. They just can't find a provider who will take it. All right. So cost. We've talked a lot about cost. In, in the lectures and the book talks a lot about costs. Your book is very big on government um, run healthcare systems. And so government runs on what we call us from a central planning model. They, they determine in advance what is needed and who's going to need it and how much they're going to need. And so they, they determine the structure of the healthcare system. So if you go to, go to England, go to Great Britain, the national health system, has clinics and has hospitals, and they put them uh, where the government agents think that they should be. Um, they, you know, uh, they determine what amount of care is necessary and who is entitled to it and how it should be delivered. And then political actors decide how much the providers will be paid and they allocate and everything is allocated by political actors, right? So what do political actors care about? They care about getting reelected. And so who are they going to respond to? They're going to respond to majorities. They're going to respond to how do, they're going to respond to places that they want, you know, that are going to vote for them. So, I mean, you, in the United States, this works the same way. It's powerful senators and and congressmen will direct federal expenditures to their states. So uh, there's a joke. There are some jokes about different um, military systems. So like like the 
what is it? The F-35 fighter. It's the new, the new uh, joint fighter. So it's the uh, air, airplane, right? This is a jet that the, that all three services are using. <clears throat> Going into the future, they're using the, this F-35 and, <laughs> and they're, the parts of the F-35 are made in all these different states, basically as a result of politicians making sure that their state got a share of the F-35 contract. So somebody in their state got a share of the F-35 contract so that it would bring federal money into their state. That's how a lot of this stuff gets determined. Um, and so healthcare works the same way if the government if it's run by the government and run by politicians, politicians are going to put healthcare facilities where their voters are, not necessarily where the greatest need is, but where the people that vote for them are, right? So if you're a minority, the political, the, the politician doesn't necessarily have any incentive to make sure that your community is getting the care that it needs or it's being delivered in the in the way that that is ideal for that particular community unless you can generate the votes necessary for it so under central planning run by the government resources are allocated based on political power so if you want to get more healthcare in your area you've got to bring out the votes right uh you've got to get your man or woman elected to office so that they can drive the care to you now, on the competitive market side, right on the open market side, where it's it's all it's all about money, right? So providers are entrepreneur, act as entrepreneurs. They look around for opportunities to make a profit, and then they build the services that can that can generate the profit that they want. And so patients decide what they are willing to pay for, and providers then look at. Uh, and, and very often what a provider will do is, is look at a community and say, well, nobody's service, serving that community. I could go in there and sell services to them. So actually a competitive market works really well for providing services to um, marginalized populations because providers looking to make a profit will say, well, this population is being ignored. I could go build a build something in there and make money doing it. And so um, the problem with the competitive market is it doesn't look like anybody's planning it. And you know why? Because nobody's planning it, right? It's all a bunch of individuals doing stuff that they think will make them money. Now, the downside of that is patients don't always know what they actually need, right? They pay for their experience. They like nice looking clinics. They like uh, they like to have providers that talk very nicely to them and show them a lot of respect, but that doesn't mean that the provider is necessarily the best kind, the best provider of his or her type, because patients can't tell the difference. And so, you might be thinking you're getting something really high quality, but what you're getting are the things that you can evaluate, like how nice are they, how pretty is their office, you know, things like that. Um, and and so, but prices emerge, right, um, as entrepreneurs compete for patients, as opposed to how it is under, for the most part, under government-run system. We talked about, you know, particularly in Medicare, the federal government sets the rates for Medicare. Over here, right, providers in a, in a pure market economy, provider, the price would emerge based on supply and demand. Um, 
And so if you see a misallocation of patient uh, of physicians, which is what we see in the United States, in part because the government decides what the prices are, if you if you had a whole bunch of physicians practicing in the city, what would happen is the prices would be driven down through competition. But because we have such a heavy government hand in determining pricing in healthcare, the prices aren't driven down. And so there, so if you had a pure competitive market and there were lots of physicians clustered together in a, in a city, what would happen is the price that all of the physicians would be able to earn would go down and suddenly practicing in the rural environment would look better because the relative um, price that they'd be able to charge in a rural environment where there are relatively few providers would be high relative to the urban environment where there are lots of providers. And so that would that would cause providers looking to make money to leave the urban environment and go to the rural environment and naturally reallocate the number of providers. That doesn't happen because so much of our reimbursement is determined by the central planning function of the of CMS uh, uh, and the federal government. Now, what's the downside? Well, the downside uh, of competitive market, um, amongst other, uh, in, in addition to patients not really knowing what they're buying and buying stuff that they think is important but isn't, uh, that's a possible downside. Um, it, it, but that could also work itself out and I'm not going to take the time to talk about that is ultimately it's all uh, resources are allocated on ability to pay. So if you're rich, you get whatever you want. If you're poor, you struggle to find something. So that's where, you know, that's the trade-off, right? Alloc the allocation is based on ability to pay on the competitive market side. On this side, it's, it's, it's on, it's based on a political power. So if you're a politically powerful group, you're going to get whatever you want. If you're a politically marginalized group, you're not going to get what you want. And we have lots of history of seeing that uh, in the United States, particularly with the black community. Um, and over here, if you have lots of money, you'll get whatever you want. And if you're poor, you won't get much, you will get the dregs of the system. So we've been talking about cost, quality, and access, trying to balance all that out. And the kind of the bottom line is it's complicated, right? How do we get good quality care? Well, first of all, we really, what we don't want, we don't care that much about the care. What we care about is the outcome. We want to be healthy. Well, there's 525,600 minutes in a year. We all have that same 525,600 minutes. Most of our health status is going to come from the choices that we make in terms of our health behaviors. And that's influenced by uh, the social determinants of health, the environment that we live in. The health system itself has a relatively small role in our overall health status in our overall health outcomes. But it does have an important role. That that role makes the difference between life and death uh, often in the crucial moments. But most of our health outcomes, most of our health comes from what we choose to do with the other 525,500 minutes of the year. All right, that's it for cost quality access. We'll see you for chapter, what is it, 13 next.